Hello, what's up? Sleepy man. I'm also saying to this uh, Tony Anthony Mark uh, Anthony Davis. I want them to default. I mean, he is pushing for this. This is 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 Joe Biden Since being terrorism. a little naive here, thinking that he can negotiate. Earning mind the deadline, according to Janet Yellen, is the first of June. It's very hard to believe the backers of these lawmakers, that they're primary donors who have the means to donate largely to political causes and parties, actually want to crash any sector of the world economy. However, in this, in the year 2023, um, what is beyond belief? Um, I think that one of the things that I identify with about Joe Biden is his constant belief that he can connect with people and find common ground. Um, I think that's something that he prizes about himself and that he has been able to do a great deal over the course of his political career. I think that it is really, really hard intellectually to adjust to a reality in which the people who have for, for decades been legitimate negotiators and interlocutors are now suddenly not rational actors. It's really also terrifying to, to hold that reality because you have to suddenly encounter the position millions of Americans are represented by someone who is not a rational actor, who does not have the well-being of the nation at the center of their pursuits and ideas. So I think it's a really scary place to be in. I understand why Joe Biden, why our president might be having a hard time <laughs> getting there. Um, but I also acknowledge that you know, as a lawyer, one uses tactics. In a negotiation, there's so much um, sort of bluffing and posturing and strategic communications and going out to the press and being like, there are gaps between us. I don't know how to... That could very well also be a strategy. Um, it's a slightly ridiculous one. It's a negotiation. Of course there are gaps. Two sides don't agree. That's literally the point of a negotiation. I'm not sure it was a particularly like well-phrased strategic comms attempt, but I, I think there's a good chance that's what it was. There should never really be a negotiation over this. I mean, the whole point of raising the debt ceiling is that it's something that Congress has to do. It's part of their responsibility. Other countries take on more debt and they don't have a meeting or a, a vote to raise the debt ceiling. They just raise the debt ceiling. And the debt ceiling has been raised consistently. Over the last 63 years, I think Republicans have done it 49 times and uh, mm. Democrats have done it 29 times. It was raised three times under Donald Trump without question. They just raise it because that's what you do. And, and this time it's been weaponized. This mm. time, you, you know, they're, they're, they are weaponizing the debt ceiling, which is something that should, that should not even, no one should mess around with yeah. because of the knock-on effect. And, and in the words of Joe Biden... This is not your father's Republican Party or even your grandfather's Republican Party, right? He says that. Yeah. And yet he thinks that he can negotiate effectively with terrorists. You know, um, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about. This is yet another area in which, of course, the U.S. is like wildly outside of international norms. As you or point 50 out. years behind, you could also say. You could. You could say yeah. we live in a benighted past and think we're living in a glittering future, and that disconnect itself is terrifying. Um, 
but I think there's also this really sort of interesting angle on what we're fighting over, right? We have a group of folks who think that vast cuts need to be made for the services our government provides. They're using this opportunity to try to force those, to try to take those things away from the American people. There's another contingent that thinks the government should do things for people, and that's why we're all paying taxes, so that the government can do things for people. It's really odd to me that the conversation has been so utterly focused on what can be taken away from the American people, because there are other avenues of addressing government deficits and addressing, you know, the needs of this population, which involve discussions of taxation of the very, very, very wealthiest Americans. Not ordinary people, not the folks your kids go to school with, but folks you've probably never met and maybe read about in the news. Um, I think that in this country that that is a fundamental divide between the people who think the government should do things for people and the people who think the government should control people. They're fundamentally opposing views that I understand why they can't come to agreement. But I also think that one of them is, again, strongly minority view. Very few people live in this country, want their government to stop performing the things that keep our children safe, that keep our old people able to put food on the table and and live healthy lives that support um, families who are struggling the most. I mean, the things that they're proposing taking off the table are things that would really directly hurt a lot of kids and families. And for a, a, a party that's so vocal about the needs of children and families and American family values, to speak out one side of their mouth about family values and then with the other side of their mouth propose cuts that would harm children and the elderly shows you again how gerrymandered this country is or how checked out voters are. I mean, 50% of the population don't watch the news or have any interest in the news. I mean, that is someone who, like, writes the news. <laughs> that really <laughs> concerns me. Um, you know, life for some is better being checked out, right? Because it's stressful and the world is not in a happy place. And just to kind of get on, you know, be, to stay in your lane, I think, is, is easier. Problem with that is, is that it's very easy to tell people what's happening. You know, if you come into contact with somebody who has very specific views, they can easily brainwash you, but they can certainly kind of, you're, you're very open to suggestion. Mm-hmm. And this idea, I just want to get into what you're saying about the difference between the government of being there for you and the government being there against you. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why the word socialism is used as a dirty word in America, right? People fear the idea of socialism mm-hmm. without really knowing what it is. And, and, and is the problem that things like socialism and communism, the, the definition is pretty loose. You know, it's, there isn't a clear definition mm-hmm. of either of those things. It, it, it changes over time. I mean, the UK is a social democracy. You know, we have free health care mm-hmm. and we... And we have uh, free um, welfare, welfare state. If you can't work, you're paid. And you're paid forever. There's no limit. And you have unlimited sick days at work. You don't use up all your sick days and then just be sick Mm -hmm. and go to work, bring your germs in. I mean, these things are, are essential from where I'm from. And yet, if I was explaining that to somebody who didn't really pay much attention to the news, they would think I was living in some kind of communist country. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that 
the words used intellectually to describe models of political thought are the most effective with ordinary Americans. <laughs> I think you're right that, um, look, our politicians realized a long time ago that fear equals power. When you can scare people, but make them feel like you're going to keep them safe from the boogeyman, you get elected. And this doesn't just manifest in our policies as they relate to the workplace or to public health or to social safety net. Um, this is, I mean, in my work, I transform public defense. It's what I do. I help public defenders build out more caregiving services within their practice so that when somebody is in crisis, their public defender has the means to help them address that crisis and move forward towards greater health and safety and economic mobility, which, by the way, is good for everyone. If folks who are getting arrested are supported to succeed and never get arrested again, great. We should all be thrilled. We live in a country where the politics of fear have resulted in beliefs in the population that welfare is really dangerous and something that should only be given out in small doses and, and you have to you know work hard to get it. Or that you, know, you can't let too many people get disability or health benefits because they'll take advantage and they'll overrun you. Or that we need vast policing apparatus to keep us safe from all of these criminals who are overrunning our streets. In fact, you know, historically, crime is incredibly low. Most people, this again goes to education and news, when people don't have the actual data about the world in which they live, they are wildly susceptible to the fear-mongering oppressive politics. So yeah, you're right, we're wildly out of step with the world, but that's because we've given up our ability to get the information that can help us know when politicians are lying to us to keep us under control. The news is a business. I mean, let's not forget that. You know, that that is the problem. And obviously, it's becoming a, exposed a little more now with Fox and CNN. There's more understanding, I think, about who owns these organizations and, and what their kind of political allegiances might be. But still, there are so many outlets and, and, you know, people can just go looking for the news that chimes with them. And, and that in itself is kind of unhelpful. So how do we how do we kind of write this wrong? Because, you know, I'm, I'm very, very conscious that it's easy for us to kind of moan about it. But solutions are are few and far between, aren't they? When you have 330 million people who need to be managed, they need to be looked after, they need to be supported. And the only way you can do that is with government. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, you're really right. Some of the news is uh, subject to the nefarious control of highly motivated actors. In other words, sometimes the owner of the news wants you to think a certain thing and is going to tell you that thing, whether it's true or not. Sometimes, though, you know, in this country, we have a long history of um, if it bleeds, it leads. Meaning that since the days of newspaper boys in coal-covered streets, we have known that more news sells when it contains gory and horrifying details. Which means that even without a nefarious owner, news organizations are often motivated to put forth the news that gets the most public attention. These days, it's, it's clicks. In the olden days, it was, you know, buying papers. So this isn't like a new phenomenon. It's very dangerous to have a news apparatus that is subject to what the politics, to what the people, excuse me, what the people find engrossing. Because what's engrossing is not always what people actually need to know. 
So what is the recommendation? I mean, I think there are incredible news organizations out there that are trying to do better at taking that stewardship of the public mind really, really, really seriously and do a better job of informing people. I happen to know more about it in my sector. And again, stewardship of the public mind. I'm not going to tell people about things that I don't know about, but I know that in my sector, you know, the Marshall Project, the Appeal, um, Prison Journalism Project, like these are all areas where the truth about, I mean, even my own, in my own company on, on the Partners for Justice website, we have a whole section called Evidence. Anybody who wants to know about what really creates safety can just dip in and get all the studies, all the studies on how housing or health care or even voting, civic participation relates back to safety and health and economic mobility. So the information is there and there are people trying to promulgate it. I think the trouble is for most of us, we also have to have the restraint to vote with our eyeballs and not watch the things that we begin to tell are designed just to engross us and not to inform us turn it off. Really hard to do. It's hard to look away from the specter, but I think that the more we don't just do it for ourselves, but help our family members turn it off, the healthier we're going to be. On Wednesday, I was, I was writing Five Minute News, which is my, my daily briefing. And I, I decided, we'll just do three stories each day, the most important things in the world. And I made an editorial decision, which I am since quite proud of. That was to talk about the flooding in Somalia after months of drought. And a quarter of a million people have had to relocate. And this is a story we're going to hear a lot more of because of climate change migration. Whereas the climate changes, people are going to have to shift. And if, if Republicans are worried about the southern border now, <laughs> boy, are they going to have a big surprise yeah. as, as, as climate change evolves. For me, you know, I'm making the news for the American market. That story had more value than some of the sensationalist stuff that was happening that day. And there was a lot, there was a lot of news that day. Yeah. And it's these decisions that the editors need to run with. The idea that to educate and inform, it's not just, you know, that story wasn't just about Somalia. That story was about all of us on yeah. all continents, about how, you know, climate is a thing. I mean, climate is an interesting subject to talk about in terms of the news in America never hear about it. I mean, yeah. it's like, it's not a thing anymore. And yet every other country has a completely different attitude to climate. Here it's been politicized. Even when I watch on cable news, someone standing in front of a tornado or something, they're getting covered in soaks, there's cars floating in the water. They never Isn't mention it climate change. strange that this weather is happening? We <laughs> have right, no explanation just, they're like, for this strange weather. freak weather. And it's like, the scientists have been warning you yeah. about this for the last 40 years. So... I mean, this is a huge hurdle to overcome, isn't it? Like, what is popular? It's this kind of populist nature of modern news gathering and the popular leaders as well, the leaders that have made certain subjects populist and others not. No, I have a lot of faith in the next generation. They have it's... aggressive minds. They are pushy and they want to know stuff and they don't sit down easily when you tell them to, and I love that about them. I mean... Right now, I think one of the best publications for responsible journalism pushing forth, you know, difficult stories that people really need to hear is Teen Vogue. Teen Vogue is doing an amazing job of educating their readers. And their readers, of course, are young people. So um, the unwillingness of Gen Z to comply um, 
with the state of their educational system, with the state of their policing apparatus, with the state of their government, gives me a lot of hope and inspires me. I'm lucky enough to have a lot of Gen Zers working at Partners for Justice and, and you know, working in public defense all across the country for our program. And their level of information they hold, the degree to which they've been able to connect with peers whose lived experience they can learn from and aggressively, you know, dive into subject matter they care about, even when that subject matter is terrifying. Because, like, let's look at it this way. You know, I'm, I'm a millennial. I've got a little daughter. I'm terrified for her future in a climate change world. I'm terrified for her safety. Um, I grew up, you know, before the internet was a thing for everybody, I grew up in a really different world. Um, climate change will be having some of its worst effects when I'm very, very old. Um, my people in my program, many of them are going to be experiencing the brunt of it in the prime of their life. They've had to grow up in a world with school shootings all the time, every day, and mall shootings, and like every like shootings everywhere. They're never safe. Um, they've grown up in a culture that is wildly accepting and, and embracing and inclusive of diversity, but in which many governments want to violently oppress their peers and friends and loved ones. So they've grown up with um, a terrifying future, constant violent threat, government oppression, not to mention all the news stories about how, like, oh, these Gen Zers are in the workplace. My God. You know, like, they're so difficult. Like, they've had so much crap thrown at their faces, and they remain invested in our future as a nation and trying to change things. How can we not stay engaged when they're out there doing that? I agree. I, I also have a young daughter in the public school system, and I, you know, she surprises me all the time with her kind of inquisitiveness. And you see campaigns, whether it be the Parkland kids, for example, on the school shootings front. I mean, you see young people who are not prepared to take the propaganda on and actually have hard evidence of their own. And I agree. That, for me, is the most positive, kind of optimistic aspect of our, of our future to look forward to. Um, they won't think that wind turbines give you cancer or kill birds, you know? <laughs> oh. I mean, I never, on the, just finally on the climate change front, I, like, I never understood why anybody would be against solar. You know, like, why, what, which aspect of solar do you have a problem with? Right. Your energy bills are already too high. There's the sun. This panel's going to convert it into energy that's free. Yeah. Why would you campaign against that? Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, we had solar calculators, like when I was a child, and it was the greatest thing. Right? It's the yeah. greatest thing. So these a lot of these arguments are so backward. You know? Mm -hmm. And I think solar is a good example of this. I mean, I've been to shanty towns in Turkey where these little huts all have a solar panel on the roof, a little inverter inside. Because there's no infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So you make it work. And, and and yet the US, you know, I mean I appreciate there's been issues about imports and Chinese solar versus U.S. made solar and the costs and all that kind of stuff. But you know, it just doesn't, it's a perfect example of how backward America can be on the subject of climate change, that people don't want free energy. It's also, you know, when pe I think there's a lot of people who, fall, who have fallen for this sort of like oil sector propaganda, oil, coal and gas propaganda. 
in a way that causes them to abandon the things they ostensibly really care about. The capitalism and the free market. We're in a place right now where there's a, there are products hitting the market that are going to be massive in the new economy. Solar, wind, geothermal, you know, modular nuclear. Like there are so many things. I think about this a lot because I grew up in part in Wyoming. Wyoming's a state that has been really, really, really reliant on the oil industry in order for, for its economy. So you get a lot of policymaking that is based on oil industry propaganda clinging us to oil, to a dying industry. And you get a lot of families who can't find work or whose family members have been wrecked by um, addiction, substance use, uh, their bodies destroyed by years of working in an oil field. And you've got a state where there's unbelievable potential to thrive, create new jobs, make a whole bunch of money in the green economy, which supposedly people care about. They want money and jobs in a healthy economy. And yet the propaganda is telling them to reject green energy. That's starting to chip away a little bit in Wyoming. And I'm actually really hopeful that there's going to be a tipping point where enough people realize, oh, there's buckets of money to be made here if we just switch to the next generation economy instead of clinging to the old one and stop letting people whose business isn't going to work anymore tell us what to do. Fortunately, oil companies have been telling us what to do and what to think for a long yeah. time as well. And then their investment in propaganda has been as significant as their investment in digging oil out of the ground. Yeah. And, and that's obviously very hard for people to kind of get their heads around what is, what is real and what, what's not real. Um, let's just go back to the debt ceiling for just a moment, because it's interesting how people don't realize the, how, how an economy works and how most countries take in fewer tax dollars than they spend and how debt is a normal part of running a, 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 an economy. And that, because, you know, apparently the average credit card debt for the average American is around $35,000. I mean, America is very credit heavy. Yeah. Credit checks for everything. You know, you want to rent a, an apartment, mm -hmm. credit credit checks. You want to lease a car, credit checks. We don't really have that in the UK so much, interestingly. It's like, never really knew what my credit was. It wasn't a thing to worry about because in the same way that our bank account was free. Here, I right. have to pay for a bank account. If I want to write a check, I have to pay to get a stack of checks, you know? Mm -hmm. All of that stuff is just free where I'm from. Again, understanding the difference between the way Europe works and the way America has convinced people that nothing is for free. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, the, the government will spend money to bring services. And, and you work with people who need these services and, and access to these services. How, how much do you feel that organizations like yours have to fill in the gaps that government is not providing? I mean, how much more money could and should the government be spending on making life just livable for, for so many people? I'm really glad you asked me that. I had an article come out on Friday um, about sort of comparing the state of our national debt, the state of individual debts that are created by our incarceration system, our punishment system which um, we do a lot of pretending is about, you know, restoration, is pay, pay your debt to society, and then you just resume your life. Actually, most people come home from incarceration with $13,000 in debt in a country where the average American cannot afford a $1,000 emergency. Um, and it sort of unpacks the, the subsequent forms of financial devastation that our government is actually causing for the nearly half of American families who've had a loved one incarcerated. It's really interesting. It's not just about what should the government be giving, 
It's what should the government stop taking away and stop um, undermining its own stated goals through um, cruelties and inefficiencies and old, outdated habits. My work, it's actually been really interesting. I, we're working to help more people understand that public defense shouldn't just be about the law. It should be about whole person well-being. And that means that we intersect with a lot of different services. On average, the folks that we are serving, um, the public defender clients, are getting two to seven services from our team. That doesn't mean they're coming directly from us. Often the service is signing somebody up for public benefits so they can get access to health care or health insurance through the government or food stamps. Um, sometimes it's getting somebody into a substance use or mental health treatment program, which far too often is a private entity that costs money. Um, so I think our work has illuminated a great deal of slack that our government could pick up, particularly when it comes to housing and access to mental health care. If I could wave a magic wand, there's actually three things that are most related to safety in America. Housing, income, and access to necessary care. If a person has a roof over their head, the ability to put food on the table, and access to any mental health or substance use care they need, the chances of them committing a crime are extremely low. If we invested in this, we would be a dramatically safer country. But these are areas where our government has to do better. I think Eric Adams in New York is a perfect example of the opposite of this, which is cutting the things that cause safety and investing instead in more and more police, um, which don't actually prevent much. They are more of a responsive actor that imposes punishments that have not been shown to stop future crime. So one thing that gives me a great deal of hope is when we advance the case that public defense should be about all of this wraparound care, most of the time, once we show local governments how much their public defender could be a valuable part of public safety infrastructure, those governments say, you know what, you're right, I see the data. I see that your ROI could be an estimated three to six dollars on the dollar in redu reduced incarceration. Like I'm going to invest in that public defender, to see if we can do better. So I actually have a bit of hope in local government and discrete issues to invest in smart ways. I just think that upscaling it is really challenging when we are sometimes less of a nation and more 3,142 counties plus the District of Columbia. I get the feeling that Republicans that I hear kind of arguing this because, you know, these debt ceiling negotiations, they want to cut a whole bunch of stuff. Republicans want to cut there's aspects of Medicaid they want to cut, meals on wheels services. There's all sorts of things that, that they, they want to lose in this negotiation that are an essential support for, for so many. I think it's the case that, you know, MAGA Republicans are convinced that they are perfect species. It's kind of white Christian nationalists, they don't commit crimes, they don't need to take any services, you know, they, they obviously ignore the kind of the extremist kind of white nationalist mass shootings aspect of, of their crimes. But I, I just get a sense when I hear people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is now pretty much running the Republican Party in Congress, she certainly has one over the House Speaker, but they, talk, they always talk in a way that their kind do not need these services. They, they are, you know, they're, what are they, kind of middle class people? They all earn a good wage. Like all of these, the ills of society belong to the minorities. They belong to the, to the black and brown people. They belong to the LGBTQ plus communities. Like there is this kind of separation where they, they and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, it's a religious thing. 
It's racism. <laughs> no, it's racism. That's, that's, that's a pat answer. It, it, I, um, I'm not wrong, though. The way that they talk is that, that all of the ills of society belong to people who might vote Democrat. That yeah. actually the process of the idea of small government is because their people, their supporters are not bad. They, they can look after themselves. They are self-sufficient. They don't need to be told what to do. And, and of course, it's, it's garbage. Yeah. But th this is what they're peddling. Yeah, I think it's very tempting, right? Isn't it, isn't it very tempting to believe that you are a wonderful example of humanity and that you're doing your best in life and that all the choices you're making are the choices that a person should be making? If they were in your circumstances, in your context, you are an honest dealer doing the best you can. We all like, want to believe that. A supremacist, that. even. Yeah, I think that, I mean, obviously there's a lot of racism and othering and, and, and suspicion. I mean, this is why people in big cities tend to get more progressive over time. Because when you're around a lot of people who are very different from you, you learn like, oh, we're all human. And people who are very different from me are okay and not scary and I'm still safe. Yeah. It's easier to become um, immersed in your own sense of your own urgent need for a sense of worth. And fear of difference when you are highly isolated and having that messaging reaffirmed by your leaders and people who are culturally um, authoritative to you, culturally trusted. I don't think, though, that it's fair to say that it's just MAGA Republicans who are like this. I mean, I think that so in my field, you know, <laughs> you hear a lot of stories about Karens. I don't yeah. know what the political belief system of a Karen really is, but I do know that there are a lot of very well-meaning liberal white women who will call the cops on a black person just because they see them. And um, I think that that kind of ingrained white supremacy and that ingrained fear of, you know, people who are different is not limited politically to any one group. Um, I don't think it's it's necessarily um, something that can be overcome absent more ways of exposing people to each other and getting people to connect with folks who are different than them. I mean, again, back to our educational system, right? Like diversity in education isn't a nice soundbite or a box to check. It's very valuable for children to encounter other children who are different from them and have different life experiences. The, the irony is we are a nation of immigrants. And <laughs> You know, that, that is where this kind of um, this contradiction presents itself. I want to talk about the, the southern border and uh, Title 42 ending in, in just a moment. We're going to take another pause for our sponsor here on The Weekend Show. The show is sponsored by Lomi. I have a big family and, well, that means there's usually a lot of trash left over by the time the week comes to an end. And frankly, I used to feel a bit guilty about this. But then I got a Lomi. Now that I have a Lomi, it's changed the way I think about my food waste. Lomi transforms my garbage into gold at the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps into dirt in under four hours. Now, I love composting, plus it's made cooking at home even more fun. There's no food rotting in the garbage and smelling up the kitchen. Thanks to Lomi, I only have to take the trash out once a week, and it's a hassle-free, mess-free experience. No more leaking bags something cool too. I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants, lawn, or garden. That means it's not going to landfill and producing methane gas. I get to help the environment and make my life easier. 
kept all my food scraps, plant clippings, and even those leftovers I forgot in the back of my refrigerator go back into my garden, helping me grow more nutritious food right in my backyard. I learned that food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint. By reducing the amount of food I send to landfill, I'm helping do my part for the planet while also feeding my garden. Whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash weekend and use promo code weekend to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash weekend and use promo code weekend at checkout. Thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode. Cold turkey may be great on sandwiches, but there's a better way to break your bad habits. We're not talking about some weird mind voodoo from your wacky neighbour or some sketchy message board. We're talking about our sponsor, Fume, and they look at the problem in a different way. Not everything in a bad habit is wrong, so instead of a drastic, uncomfortable change, why not just remove the bad from your habit? Fume is an innovative, award-nominated device that does just that. Instead of electronics, fume is completely natural. Instead of vapor, fume uses flavored air. And instead of harmful chemicals, fume uses all natural, delicious flavors. You get it. Instead of bad, fume is good. It's a habit you're free to enjoy and makes replacing your bad habit easy. Your fume comes with an adjustable airflow dial that is designed with movable parts and magnets for fidgeting, giving your fingers a lot to do, which is helpful for de-stressing and anxiety while breaking your habit. I gave a fume to my sister, and she was shocked at how flavorful and fresh it tasted. It's easy to hold and perfectly balanced, and quite honestly, extremely fun to fidget with. The real wood material and sleek design definitely classes it up, and she feels pretty cool holding it. Stopping is something we all put off because it's hard, but switching to Fume is easy, enjoyable, and even fun. Fume has served over a hundred thousand customers and has thousands of success stories, and there's no reason that can't be you. Join Fume in accelerating humanity's breakup from destructive habits by picking up the Journey Pack today. Head to tryfume.com and use code Weekend to save ten percent off when you get the Journey Pack today. That's tryfum.com and use code WEEKEND to save an additional 10% off your order today. Back with Emily Galvin Almanza here on The Weekend Show. I'm Anthony Davis. The Supreme Court on Thursday dismissed an attempt by Republican-led states to maintain the pandemic-era immigration measure known as Title 42. The court's brief order was one sentence long, instructing an appeals court to dismiss the state's motion to intervene in the case as moot. The move was almost surely prompted by the end of the health emergency that had been used to justify Title 42, which of course was COVID, and uh, you know, claiming that this was a reason to prevent migrants, you know, seeking asylum in the in the the U.S. Um, the southern border is a is a whole thing, isn't it? It's like politically, it's a whole thing, and what actually is going on there versus what uh, legislators in 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 um, Capitol Hill or on Capitol Hill are talking about are often two very different things, uh, and something that Republicans like to use in terms of their kind of weaponized language is that well, Joe Biden hasn't even been to the southern border, or 
the, or the vice president hasn't even been to the southern border. This idea of going there somehow is going to end all of the migration problems. Um, I have a lot of faith, actually, in Alejandro Mayorkas, who's the, the kind of the main man at the moment, uh, an immigrant himself, and somebody who is certainly kind of is is making sure that the the border remains secure but also has a modicum of compassion which was something that was missing during the Trump presidency there is an argument and this is my question there is an argument to say that Biden hasn't really changed much i mean he he as is being as tough on the border as Trump was and, and some people are critical of that what what are your thoughts on that my first thought is that First of all, I'd like to start using the word people. I feel like the word migrant creates this vision of the other clawing at our gates. And, and what we're really talking about here are people, largely people who've been in really dangerous circumstances in their home country, and largely people who are coming here seeking safety. Um, Title 42, of course, during the pandemic was utilized to allow Border agents to turn people away and turn families away without any legal process. That's why there were allegations from the international community that it was actually a violation of international human rights laws to, to turn asylum seekers away, and asylum seekers being people who come here purely because they are unsafe where they are. They are trying to use our legal process to seek safety within our borders. Turning them away without legal process, of course, abrogates our duty as a nation which purportedly offers asylum. Um, in terms of the way things are now, here's what I will say. We were all horrified when the Trump administration started separating families at the border. And when we saw stories of children taken from their parents and lost into a system where children died. There are still a thousand children who have not been reunited with their families. Um, I think that I fear, look, I am very happy <laughs> at any move which brings us closer to a world in which we meet our legal obligations as a nation which offers asylum. And that does mean offering people a feasible, usable process to tell us their stories. Um, I'm saying feasible and usable because I understand that we're using an app right now to let people apply for entry and like nobody can, like, you, it's one of those things where like the app gets... 100,000 people trying to access it at once and then the app crashes. If you can imagine your family's safety being reliant on like a dysfunctional government app, what a black mirror nightmare world we are in. But I think what I'm saying is we have these legal processes, the process of asylum, because we believe that when a person's safety is threatened, especially for a protected reason, reason that reflects values the U.S. has in the past fought for, they should be offered safe harbor here. The vast majority of people who are offered safe harbor, who are allowed within our borders and given a court date to come and plead their case for asylum, go about their lives without incident. They meet up with family, they find work. Um, I have not seen convincing evidence that expansive legal paths for residency here are creating any major public safety hazard. I think once again, the misinformation one hears about the border is about that fear-mongering that we talked about before and how can I find an other, not a human, not a mom with two kids who was threatened because her husband was a police officer and the local gang wants her whole family dead, not the mother. Migrants, these crowds of migrants 
that's the othering. That's the fear mongering that's being used purely for political control. And I don't think it has actual relevance to immigration policy. I think people even know the difference between legal immigration and a family seeking asylum. Yeah. I mean, I mean this, is, this, is, this is important, isn't it, to understand that, that countries, you know, there is an international community. That, and, and, and Germany is a great example of this because they're very generous with, you know, who they, who they um, allow in because it borders so many countries where you know, people need help. And there is an argument to say that you have to seek asylum in the first country that you come to yeah. rather than crossing multiple borders. But, but fundamentally, asylum is not illegal immigration. Right. Exactly. And I think the other thing that people don't realize is how much of our own othering is going into this. Like, I think a lot of Americans who watched Ukrainians flee from war in their home country and show up in Germany, in Italy, and, you know, like all across Europe, I think a lot of Americans were rooting for these Ukrainian families to have their stories heard and to find safety. No one was saying like, well, maybe they were in a part of the country that was fine and they're just using this war to get to Germany. No, people were people were wanting to hear those narratives and have people engage in a real legal process to find safety and be heard. The fact that a lot of North Americans don't know what's happening in Central and South America is creating this world in which we allow ourselves to delegitimize stories and reasons of people seeking asylum here. And, and there's a lot of conservative assumptions that, oh, these people are just, you know, they just want to come here and, you know, get access to America. Like, really? I mean, yeah, if, if in your home country there's so much violence that you're afraid for your children's lives, yes, you probably do want to get access to America. And if you can't escape from that violence within the borders of a neighboring country, you probably should get access to America. But so many Americans don't know about that level of violence. Or... Imagine this world in which vast, you know, hordes of immigrants are taking American jobs, which also, again, does not reflect reality. There are, in fact, hugely problematic sectors of our economy where there are jobs Americans won't take, which are being taken by immigrants. So I think that, again, looking at the Ukraine example shows you how badly skewed from reality that conservative North American perspective on Central and South American migration really is. A lot of those people who complain are very proud of their Irish heritage yeah. or their Italian heritage. And, you know, they refer to themselves as Italian Americans or whatever. And, and they know and where they came like, from in Calabria yeah. or Palermo. Like they know they, like, I know my family came here from Galway and Cork and like worked on the railroad and like fought in our wars. And I'm proud of that too. I just apply that pride really differently. Joe Biden is very proud of his Irish heritage as well, right? And he, he's, uh, he's from a little village called Ballinar. And he went there recently, and they love it when he shows up. It's like, it's incredible, really. This idea of, of immigration and immigrants and slaves building America, this, this, again, is being whitewashed from the history books by so many. And, and that in itself is proof almost they don't even want to fix the southern border crisis as they describe it because it actually plays into the fear donald trump referred to mexicans as rapists and criminals they use these biblical words like swarm to describe humans yep. it's 
I mean, what chance does, do families have? And, and my fear also is that there are border agents mm. who subscribe to the Donald Trump yes, ideology. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you I mean, I felt that I was taking a risk every time I was coming into the U.S. as a, as a visitor yeah. at immigration, making sure that I answer the questions correctly. What hope is there for people coming in at the southern border? I would also, by the way, add to your, your perspective on, on Border Patrol, the fact that once you are within these borders, you encounter a lot of those attitudes in law enforcement right. who are looking out for people they may suspect of not being born in this country and treating them with extreme harshness. Yes. Um, what hope is there? I mean, one can always have the hope that Americans claim to prize our history and claim to prize their immigrant identity and and um, maybe don't know that the Statue of Liberty was called the mother of exiles and asks that we send the wretched refuse of our teeming shore to her. Um, maybe people will awaken to that history and once again take on a sense of pride in being a nation where people come for safety and, yeah, maybe even to pursue dreams. Maybe that would be a phenomenal new form of public awakening. In the near term, though? Um, my hope is that the administration will, in its formation of policy, account for the actual realities on the ground, as opposed to just the ideological values that they think they're putting forth with policy. And that means things like ensuring that people are getting actual fair hearings and actually able to access those hearings when they show up at our borders. It's not actually illegal, by the way, to come up to the border and seek asylum. A lot. <laughs> I remember during the Trump administration, a lot of people were, were claiming that that crossing to seek asylum is illegal. It is, in fact, not. It is perfectly legal to seek asylum at our borders, and it is perfectly legal to show up at our border seeking entry, even for non-asylum reasons. Um, seeking itself is not a crime. Um, but I think an administration which relies on the good faith and good policies and custodial care of carceral institutions that haven't proven themselves worthy of that reliance is really dangerous. I mean, look, I think I think relying on an app that doesn't seem to be working, like, also not great. But the fact that we talk about when people come here, the facilities we talk about immigrations being processed through we are finding paths to essentially put people who came here seeking safety into a form of American prison. I don't think there are other countries that like temporarily incarcerate people seeking to immigrate there. Um, yet that is a completely normal American practice. And part of the attitudes that are formed in our cohort of Customs and Border Patrol professionals are formed by the structures we associate them with. If we make things that look like prisons and operate like prisons and treat people with suspicion as if their activity is not, in fact, legal attempts to enter a new nation, but rather an attempted crime, perhaps even a felony, the more we associate that policing and prison apparatus with our borders, the worse things get. So if I were able to advise that administration, I wouldn't just be looking for better policy right now that can let more people seek legal status. I would be looking for ways to culturally decarcerate the entire system of entry so that we are not separating families and doing violence to people who only came to us for safety. Maybe reminding Americans that all of the stuff that they hold dear, a lot of it has come from 
other places. I mean, even the Statue of Liberty was not built in America. A, yes, thank you gift. again, France. Very generous. It was a gift from France. And so you know, the, the, this kind of faux outrage goes hand in hand with this kind of fake patriotism, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and to be truly patriotic, you understand, you know your history, you know where you've come from, not just your own history, but the history of others and all of the great things that m make America great, not necessarily again, but certainly this time, are, are from the minds of immigrants who were smart enough to want to come to America, to, to, yeah. to leave their homes. I mean, I'm one of them. You know, I, I, I lived in London, one of the greatest cities in the world, and yet I chose to come to the U.S. because I thought I would have a better life for me and my children. Yeah, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before, which is the idea that the success of other Americans is our own, right? That um, difference and different abilities and different forms of expertise and knowledge, and and I don't just mean knowledge learned through study, I mean international knowledge brought here through movement of people across borders makes us stronger. It's not threatening. It's You know, it's really funny. This is a terrible metaphor, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. My kid's a really picky eater. And if I present her with a new food, she's like, no, that's clearly poison. I will, I will not attempt this tomato. Yeah. And we all, as adults, uh, even if you don't have kids, you probably know that, like, it's good for the kid to be pushed a little bit outside her boundaries and to get comfortable with things that are unfamiliar and new. And it'll make her into a, a, a stronger, more resilient person in the long run. Unfortunately, we have a lot of grown adults this vision of a great America is a completely homogenous world in which everybody looks like them, thinks like them, behaves like them. There's nothing scary. There's nothing different. It's totally familiar. And that, to me, is the great danger. I don't mean to minimize how dangerous that is because a lot of those people um, <laughs> are putting folks in power who are acting against the interests of the majority. Or a lot of those people are engaging in armed conflict. I mean, there's like a lot of danger in that ideology among American adults it's so odd to me that we understand the importance of difference and exploration and shared achievement in our youngest members and so thoroughly abandon that when it comes to pushing our fellow Americans to, to exit their comfort zone and resume our American identity of diversity, of greatness, of an immigrant culture. I mean, that's what's gotten us through the last hundreds of years. I have a working theory that America is the greatest country in the world, but not for the reasons you think it is. And, and, that, and, that, and that's something I'm kind of working on. I haven't, there's a book in me, I'm sure, on this subject. Because, you know, all the things that I hear, certainly from the, from the right, about, you know, why America is great and why they want to take it back to this period, I don't know when, 1956 or whatever their favorite year was, never include the four years of Donald Trump's presidency when they talk about making America great again, incidentally. But actually, the things, the reason that I choose to be here in this amazing country are for none of the reasons that they are claiming is the reason America is great. And I think we need to explore that further. Yeah, I, I often feel very conflicted about it, right? Like, even what I just said, I feel very conflicted about because those hundreds of years I described also included the most, perhaps the most violent act in human history, which was the systematic oppression, enslavement, and violent, long-standing attack on black people, which has a legacy to this day that forms pretty much all of our national systems. Yeah. 
And it's, um, and it's still going on. In, it's still in, going no, completely still going on, completely yeah. still going on. Yeah. And so what's what's my conflict is, I believe there is greatness in the existence of a nation which is ideologically dedicated to accepting folks who have fled other places, who want to come together not by a shared ethnic identity, but because of an ideology of possibility and progress. That's really cool. I feel weird every time I say the American dream because what I mean by it is that shared ideology of through difference we become greater. Um, at the same time, I'm talking about a country that has used that branding while also throughout its history violently oppressing some groups. Um, so it's interesting to think about the America that maybe exists in your head and exists in my head as a possible America and that that emerges from a history where the possible America and the real America have never actually been unified. I have to finish, but I'm very grateful. Emily Galvin Almanza, thank you for joining The Weekend Show. Thanks for having me. I'm Anthony Davis. Please subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast. And don't forget to support me and independent journalism at patreon.com slash five minute news. You can uh, subscribe to the five minute news daily podcast. It drops every morning and hear me telling you what's happening around the world while you make your coffee. Join me next week with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the five minute news weekend show with Midas Touch. <laughs>